Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. Let us continue our worship with our first scripture reading, coming from 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 through 34. God gave Solomon very great wisdom, discernment, and breadth of understanding as vast as the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Hermon, and Calcol, and Drada, children of Mahol, his fame throughout all the surrounding nations. He composed 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered a thousand and five. He would speak of trees from the cedar that is in the Lebanon to the hyssop that grows in the wall. He would speak of animals and birds and reptiles and fish. People came from all the nations to hear the wisdom of Solomon. They came from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. During the season of Advent, we are doing a sermon series called Through the Looking Glass. This series is titled based on the children's story, which is the follow-up to Alice in Wonderland. And in this story, Alice once again finds herself in a fantastical world. She enters into it through a mirror, and so everything is reversed, including logic. If you want to move towards somebody, you have to move away. If you want to stand still, you have to run. And so her world that she enters into is very paradoxical which is why we've entitled the sermon series Through the Looking Glass, because so many elements of Jesus' life are paradoxical. 
And so each week we're taking a different element of Christian paradox and we're looking at it through this series. And we're talking about how if we can embrace that paradox in our own life, we can move closer to becoming like Jesus who represents the totality of who we are striving to be. So last week, we started with the paradox of how we find strength and weakness. And this week, we are talking about the paradox of how we have intelligence combined with uncertainty. Those two things often go together. And so today, I want to begin with 1 Kings, which is where we talked about King Solomon. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Solomon, I want to give you a little bit of background on who he is. So Solomon is the son of King David. And King David is considered to be one of the greatest kings of Israel. He is said to be a man who greatly loved his people and a man who greatly loved God. But he was not without his faults. He certainly wasn't a perfect man. And to give you an example of this, one day, David is out on the roof of his palace and he's looking out over his land and he sees a woman off in the distance who is bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. And so he wants to be with this woman, but there's one little problem standing in the way, which is that she is married. But he decides he's going to sleep with her anyway, and as a result, she gets pregnant. Now, because of this, he finds himself in violation of the Old Testament laws. And those laws say that if you commit adultery, both she and David will be killed. They'll be stoned to death. And so he has to come up with a solution to this, and he decides that he's going to have Bathsheba's husband killed. Now, Bathsheba's husband, he is a soldier. He's out fighting in the fields for Israel. And so he gives a command to the general that all of the soldiers should fall back, leaving her husband exposed, which results in his death. And so after her period of mourning, she then marries David, moves into his home, and has their first child, who is a son. Now, God's punishment on David for having killed Bathsheba's husband is that God takes his first son. David is greatly grieved by this fact, but after his time of grief, she ends up getting pregnant again, and she has a second son, and this son's name is Solomon. And upon David's death, he passes the kingdom to his son Solomon. Now, Solomon is only 12 years old at the time when he takes over for his father. And so he prays to God, and he asks God for wisdom so that he is able to lead. And this is what God says to Solomon. God gave Solomon very great wisdom, discernment, and breadth of understanding, as vast as the sand on the seashore. People came from all the nations to hear the wisdom of Solomon. They came from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So Solomon is a man who becomes revered for what he knows. His name is synonymous with genius. He's like the Einstein of his day and time. And I really think that he represents something that all of us want in our lives. We all want to be recognized for what we know. We all like to be told that we are intelligent. Now, we may not know everything about the world, but when it comes to our area of expertise, whatever it is that we've spent our life working on, it's nice when somebody compliments our intelligence. And as I told you all last week, when I was telling you a little bit about my personal story growing up, this is something that was a great challenge to me because I really struggled with my intelligence when I was in school. And so this morning, I want to take time for us to actually walk through that story a little bit more. I want to tell you a little bit more about that particular part of my life, because it's going to lay a really good foundation for what we are dealing with for the rest of this sermon. So for those of you who may not have heard the sermon last week, even though I know all of you were trying to keep up, 
I want to give you a little bit of background on what it was that I talked about. So essentially, when I was in school growing up, I was with a lot of people who were very intelligent, people who were very smart. When it came to school, pushing it. Whereas I was really struggling. I had trouble keeping up with everything. And even though I was in the advanced classes, by the time I got to high school, I was getting the worst grades of all the people in the advanced classes. I was like the worst of the best in my class. And so what happened was, as I got further into school, it seemed to me like I just couldn't keep up. I was really struggling to do the homework. It would take me hours upon hours upon hours, whereas my classmates, they would be done very quickly with all of their homework. And so it always just felt like I was behind. Well, this all changed in my sophomore year of high school. I was in my Latin class. It was third year Latin. And we were studying Cicero. Now, Cicero is somebody who I talked about in my Sans Peril sermon series, and I told you that he was one of the greatest orators of all time. And for the first half of Latin three, study Cicero's Catiline Address. But then in the second half, we were able to deal with Cicero's philosophies. And I have to tell you that this was my first introduction to philosophy. I had never actually encountered it before, and I absolutely loved it. It was amazing to me to be able to talk about these things because we were talking about life. We were talking about the problems that we deal with. We were talking about stuff that actually matters, unlike the rest of my education, which it felt like we weren't talking about really anything that mattered. And so we come to a point in his philosophies where he's talking about education and learning. And he poses this really interesting question, which he says, what is the point of learning? What is the point of becoming educated? And I think for many people, the point of getting an education or the point of learning is it's a means to an end. So you go to school so you can get a job, so you can earn money, so that you can support your lifestyle. In this way of looking at education and learning, it really is simply a way to gain a skill set so that you can become a positive contributing member of the economy. But Cicero had a very different take on learning. For Cicero, what he believed was that the reward of learning was the knowledge itself. Whether or not that knowledge gave you any economic benefit was besides the point. And I remember I was in my third year Latin class and my teacher, Betty Merrill, who had a really big impact on my life, she looked out at all the smart kids in our class and she said to them, you know, you all are really good at studying for tests and getting A's. You're remarkable at it. But you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. So you're studying to get an A so that you can go to college, but you're missing out on everything that matters because you don't actually care about the content of the material. Now, this was the first time in my entire educational career that I'd ever heard a teacher take the smart kids to task for being smart. The entire time school, if you were smart, you were revered by the teachers. You were like a demigod to them because they were like, oh, it's so easy to teach this person because they understand everything immediately. So I really perked up because I had never heard anything like this before. And then Ms. Merrill said something that has totally and completely changed my life. She said, if you care about the knowledge first, if you learn for the sake of learning, then the grades will come naturally. Now, this was a moment in my life that completely changed everything for me because it was a moment where something really clicked in my mind. So 
I will admit to you that I was no different from any of my peers. The reason why I was studying was to try to get good grades. I didn't really do it for the knowledge. But going into my junior year of high school, I decided that I was going to take on this philosophy. I was going to try to make this my motto. I was just going to learn for the sake of learning. And so what happened was I got into my junior year, and my mind became like a vacuum cleaner for information. So whereas I had had a kind of cantankerous relationship with my textbooks before that, now I actually look forward to reading my textbooks simply because I would be learning something new. And so as a result of this philosophy, it totally transformed my education. It transformed my ability to do school because I didn't really care about the grades anymore. My sophomore year, I finished the year with a 3.2 GPA, which is essentially a B. By the time I got to the end of my junior year, I had achieved a 4.3 GPA, which is basically an A+. Now, the only difference between those two things was that I had taken on this philosophy. I didn't care about the grade. And once I stopped caring about the grade and I just cared about the knowledge, all of a sudden, what she said was true. The grades came naturally. And this opened up all kinds of doors for me because from that 3.2, I was able in that one year to compensate. And I was able to get a 3.505, which allowed me to get into National Honor Society, which was just such a big thing for me because I never thought that was going to happen. And that allowed me to get into all kinds of different situations that I would have never expected. So it upped my game. Because I was a swimmer, I was now able to apply to some of these more elite schools. And I was able to get into all kinds of different schools that I would have never been able to get into before. So I was able to get into Rice University. I was able to go to Oxford University. I was able to go to Princeton Theological Seminary. I was able to do all of those things because of this particular philosophy. Now, I like to end the story there and say that everything was happily ever after for me, but that would not be true. So if I'm being honest with you, the fact is that even though I went to some pretty elite schools, the fact is, is that I felt like an imposter. Even though I had these fancy degrees, those were just a mask for my insecurities. And so what I discovered was I could very much tell people that I went to these schools and they would be impressed by the names. But that did very little to convince them that I was actually smart. Because something I didn't appreciate when I was young is that if you want to be given the label of being intelligent, that label is not something that is simply given. It is something that is earned over time. And just because you went to a fancy school or an elite school doesn't mean that you're automatically going to be given that label. And in fact, many people who go to these schools are not necessarily that intelligent. And I can tell you that, having been there, I've met a number of these people. I'll give you one example. So when I was at Oxford, I came to the end of my year there. This guy, and I said, so, we've been here an entire year. What is it that you're going to take away from your time at Oxford? And he thought about it for a second, and he goes, you know, I think what I'm probably going to take away from here is that before I got here, I just drank whatever kind of beer people put in front of me. But after being here, I really developed a taste for this one beer. And this one beer is what I drink now. So when I go back home to the United States, I'm going to have this one beer that I drink. And I thought to myself, so you've been at the center of the academic universe. You've been here with people from all over the world. Some of the smartest people from the world come to this school. And the one thing that you take away is that you now have a beer that you can drink, which I don't have anything against. It's fine if you want to have a beer that you drink. But I would think you would get more out of your educational time at Oxford than that, because you can do that anywhere. 
And this guy, by the way, wanted to become a physician. I can tell you, I would never go to, the, in, to him for anything that had to do with anything medical. I would deal with it myself, honestly, rather than go to him. So what this proved to me was that truly, you have to earn the reputation of being smart. And it is not given to you. And this is true for Solomon as well. When God gave Solomon this gift of wisdom, it took him years to cultivate that reputation. And paradoxically, one of the ways he was able to do this was that he talked about actually how little he knew. So in the book of Ecclesiastes, which according to tradition he wrote, he says this, when I applied my mind to know wisdom, how much they may toil in seeking, they will not find it out. Even though those who are wise claim to know, they cannot find it out. Now Socrates, he has a similar kind of quote to this, and I think he says it more succinctly and a little bit better, which is, the more I know, the more I realize I know nothing. So basically, once you start to learn a lot more, once you kind of broaden your educational horizons, what you realize is that it just opens more questions. There's just much more that you don't actually know about the world. And so the smartest people I have ever met, they have two things in common. The first thing that they have in common is that they understand the limitations of their knowledge and they are open to expressing those limitations. They talk about them all the time, what they don't know. And the second thing that I have noticed about the smartest people is that they understand that the world is constantly in flux and that it is driven by uncertainty and they really have a grasp of that. And it's that second element that I find to be so fascinating because there are a lot of people who are smart, they have the first one, but not always the second one. Because this is really hard for humans. We crave certainty in our life. We want to know that the way that we are approaching the world, how we think about the world, that that is going to pay dividends, that it's going to lead us down the right path. And I think this is why so many people come to church. They want to be reassured in a world where everything is up for grabs and everything feels in flux, that if they believe the right things, that they're going to be saved in the end. But what's interesting about Christianity is that that is actually not always what it does. In fact, quite the opposite. And that's what our scripture reading from John really talks about today because the scripture from John shows us how you can be certain you know everything and not really understand it. So this is a very famous story from the Gospel of John. Jesus is talking with a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, they're having a conversation about being born again. And so Jesus says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born from above. And Nicodemus, he doesn't entirely understand what Jesus is talking about. And so his response is, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? So he's taking it very literally. He's like, do I have to literally be born again? And so Jesus attempts to clarify, and I use that word very loosely here, because in John, whenever he clarifies, it can be a little bit more challenging. But basically, what Jesus says is that to be born again, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. Now, I think we all understand what it means to be born of water. That simply means to be baptized. When we're talking about being born of the Spirit, though, that's a little bit more complicated. So when we're talking about the Spirit, we're also talking about the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be born of the Holy Spirit? Well, the interpretation that most modern Christians have when it comes to this particular aspect of Christianity is that to be born again means that 
you literally have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and therefore you have your ticket into heaven. So it's this idea that you've accepted Jesus, you believe these things, and therefore you have been saved. That's what it means to be born again. But another interpretation, the one to which I subscribe, is the idea that it's a lot more mystical, that to be born again means that you are literally having to change your life orientation completely. So let me explain what I mean by this. So there's First birth and second birth. We have to talk about these things in two births. So the first birth is when you are literally born from your mother's womb. And when you come out, you are in survival mode. You have to be able to make it in the world. And once you can survive, then you can focus on upward mobility. You can focus on your success. And that success often comes at the expense of other people. Now, what that does is, when you're young in particular, it reinforces that selfish inclination. And that's how people can be. The first birth can lead you like that for your entire life. The second birth, to be born again, or to be born of the Spirit, is when you no longer focus on serving yourself, but on serving others. Your motivation in life is to serve your neighbor, particularly those who are struggling and can't survive on their own. You're Desire for success goes away. You're willing to sacrifice that so that they have the ability to achieve upward mobility. That allows you to achieve spiritual oneness with God. And it also allows you to come to embody God's unconditional love. So when we're looking at these two different interpretations, the first interpretation is essentially that you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you will be saved. And the second interpretation of being born again is this much more mystical interpretation where you undergo a full personal and spiritual transformation. Now, the second one of these is much, much harder to do. And the truth is that when we're looking at the first one, right, it doesn't really require you to change at all. You just have to believe, think the right things, which of course is very calming to our sense of certainty. If I know that I believe the right things and I'll be saved, it makes me feel better. All I have to do is X and Y will happen. As opposed to the second way, which is the more mystical interpretation of this, which is you have to go through a full transformation. You have to kill off that part of yourself and become somebody completely new. And this is very unmooring to our sense of certainty because it's kind of nebulous. So how do I know when I've achieved this transformation? How do I know when I'm fully born again? Or am I ever truly born again? Do I always have to go through the transformation? Am I always doing it throughout the rest of my life? Now, both of these ways of thinking about it, they are draw for different reasons. So the first one, if you're a person who craves certainty, I can see why you would like that. You say, yes, I believe it, I'm good, I'm born again. But the second one, I think it's beautiful because it is so uncertain. And I actually just want to explain this part to you because I think this is so important. So if we think about what I talked about earlier, which is this idea that the more you know about the world, the more you have all these questions about what you don't know, and how you realize that the more you know, the less you truly know about the world. Christianity is a religion that lives in that space. So for me, Christianity at its best is a religion that lives in the tension of life's uncertainty. That is where Christianity exists the best. And that's actually what Christianity is all about. So to give you an example of this, let me tell you a little bit about Jesus' teachings. Like, let's just name them off. So Jesus tells you to turn the other cheek. When somebody strikes you, turn the other cheek. When you are with your enemy, you're supposed to love your enemy. 
You're supposed to pray for those who persecute you. You're supposed to welcome the stranger. You're supposed to forgive those who have hurt you. You're supposed to stand up for the poor and the oppressed. Now, on the outside of that, that is all very, very risky behavior because it makes you very vulnerable. When you do that, it's very easy for you to get hurt. And yet at the same time, when you do those things, there is this great potential for you to also transform the world. So you're living in the tension of that uncertainty. And so Christianity is this paradox where we are all kind of certain about our uncertainty, that we're all certain of what we don't know, which is that we don't know that much. So being that we're all united in what we don't know, don't, I might want to stand up here and tell you about what I believe is absolutely true. I want to tell you about what I hope is true. So in Christianity, we have hopes. And we hope that there is a God, at least I do, a God that is unconditionally loving and unconditionally forgiving. I hope that's true. I can't prove that that's true. I'm not certain that that's true. But that's what I hope is true. And I also hope that by following Jesus, by living his way of life, by making him my Lord and walking after him, that I am living in a way that is pleasing to that God. Do I know that for sure? Am I certain? No, but I hope that that is true. And I also hope that I can be like Solomon, that God can help me to embody the wisdom that when I make mistakes or when we make mistakes as a community, that we can do better, that we can rise to the occasion, that we can overcome and do our best to be a people who can transform the world for better and good. And so when we see Christianity as a religion, not that gives us certainties, but a religion that allows us to live the tension of uncertainty, that is when I think we will find ourselves in very good company. Because yes, we want those solid concrete answers. But I think there's more people out there who want honesty. And the most honest thing that I can tell you, the most honest thing that I know about life, is that when you live in the tension of uncertainty, when you live in the tension of the unknown, that is when you're going to live the best kind of life. Because I know that when I cling to things that I'm certain about, that is what inhibits me from moving forward. And so as we anticipate the birth of Jesus on December 25th, as we're looking forward to his birth, the birth of this baby who would grow to become a man who would teach us to live in the tension of the unknown, I hope that you will let go of your need for certainty. And I think that that's so important for us right now because that's what faith is all about. Faith is not knowing for a fact that what you believe is true. It's living in the tension of not knowing. Because faith is all about saying, God, I don't know where we're going. I don't know how we're going to get there. But I believe you're going to lead me in the right direction. And when you have that kind of faith, when you are able to live in that tension, that is when you are able to be born again. That's when you're able to be born of the Spirit. That's when you're able to move from serving others, serving yourself to serving others. And that's ultimately when you are able to embody the wisdom that the best kind of life, a life well lived, is a life dedicated to making the world a better place for all of God's children. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.